Take your Bibles and open to Romans 8. We are in part two of a series on Romans 8. Part one was seven weeks ago, so no worries if you don't remember everything from week one. Uh, But we will be beginning uh, in verse 9, and we will be reading through verse 17. This is God's Word. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, your word says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build it in vain. In the same way, unless the Lord opens ears and loosens tongues, those who hear and speak do so in vain as well. Father, if you do not meet with us and Enable us to receive your word. Uh, We assemble here in vain even. Father, we are confident though that you are with us, that you have given your spirit for this very reason, that we might hear you from heaven. Would you speak to us if we are listening, that we might be renewed. In Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen. If you are a parent who's ever raised a son, one question you've dealt with, or maybe you will deal with it one day, is what do I do with my teenagers spiking levels of testosterone? (laughs) Little Bobby was once such a sweet, gentle little boy, and all of a sudden he's 13, and why does he want to tear his brother's head off? What happened to him? I suppose this is one reason why we encourage youth sports. There's a lot of conversation about football and uh, danger of concussion and all that, but maybe it's better that they tackle in pads than on the concrete without protection. Uh, My parents might have been relieved that my own hobbies in high school were, uh, let's say, a bit more cerebral. So on a fall afternoon, uh, you would not have found me in pads running routes or tackling dummies, but you would have found me on the bus heading to an academic team meet. Shocking, I know. (laughs) I will add my senior year, we did bring home the state championship, which is more than our football team could say, so (laughs) just saying. But uh, one of my other hobbies in high school is reading books on apologetics. And if you don't know what that word means, apologetics is just uh, the defense of the truth of the Christian faith. 
right? So one big topic of apologetics is arguing for the reliability of the Gospels. One of the favorite arguments used by apologists for the reliability of the Gospels is the behavior of the apostles who wrote them. So the argument goes, if you made up all these stories to promote your own religion, surely you would not depict yourselves doing the things that the apostles did. Because let's face it, they were a bit dim-witted at times. One example, moments after Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, he turns around and rebukes the Son of God for saying he must suffer. And you think, Peter, what? Did you not listen to yourself? Uh, Another example is that in spite of the fact that Jesus said again and again and again, the Son of Man must suffer. And die, and after three days, raised from the dead. On the third day, where are they? Are they camped out in front of the tomb, waiting for him to step out? No. They are locked in a room, cowering in fear. Clearly, or surely, we would have done better. We would have known better, maybe we tell ourselves. But as I was thinking about our text, I kept uh, thinking back to a time when the disciples kept their mouths shut, even though we might not have. I'm thinking of the night of the Last Supper in the upper room, when Jesus tells his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. And I think if we're being honest with ourselves, if we were there hearing Jesus say these words in real time and space, it is to your advantage that I go away, we would have said, whoa, 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 wait, wait. How can that be so? How can it be to our advantage for Jesus to go away? I mean, let's be honest, how many of us have maybe prayed at some point to Jesus, can I not just get five minutes with you face to face? I've got a really big decision to make, and I would love if you would come and just give me a straight answer as to what I should do, or maybe I'm suffering and my faith is weak and my hope is growing dim, and to just see you face to face would really help. How can it be better for us to have the Spirit and not Jesus himself in the flesh with us? How can that be so? I'm not saying Paul wrote this passage necessarily to explain these words of Jesus, but I do think they give us insight into why it is the case that it's to our advantage for Christ to go away so that we can have the Spirit. What is it about the Holy Spirit, Spirit's presence in us, His work in our lives, that is so crucial for us as believers? In our study of the prior passage in Romans 8's opening, we see Paul exhort us again and again, you must live by the Spirit. Set your mind on the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. But in this evening's passage, we can imagine Paul taking a step back and saying, now I've said you should live by the Spirit, but what does the Spirit even do? What is the work of the Spirit? And in a nutshell, he's telling us that the Spirit has been given to us to give us all that we need this side of glory. And in particular, he tells us three different activities of the Spirit. The first point we see in our text is that the Spirit dwells in us to give us life. Maybe this first point would go uncontested by a lot of Christians. I think if we you know, went to your average American Christian and said, what is the best thing about the Holy Spirit? They would say, the best thing about the Spirit is He makes me feel awesome. Because the Spirit gives me experiences that fill me with wonder and excitement, and that's why the Spirit is so amazing. Maybe that's what a lot of Christians would say. I had a good friend in high school who I really looked up to him in this regard. He was very zealous to witness to his friends in in public school and um, told me about this one time where he and a friend of his uh, were, were sharing their faith in the cafeteria before school, and 
they walked away from that and he said they were both high on the spirit. And I was like, what? I didn't say that. But what does that mean? Is the idea if we input a certain level of obedience that we get a resulting psychological kick from it. And maybe a lot of Christians would, who think that way would point to this language of indwelling in verse 9 as if the Spirit is like some abstract power that we have inside us. But if we look closer, we see that that's not the process that Paul is talking about. No, he says this activity of the Spirit to give us life is not something the Spirit does on his own. But he does it by acting as a bond between us and the risen Lord Jesus himself. Look at the way Paul talks about the Spirit in this passage. Verse 9, he's the Spirit of God. Again, he's called the Spirit of Christ. End of verse 11, he's not the Spirit, but he is clearly the Father's Spirit. The Father being the one who raised Christ from the dead. So the Spirit connects us to the Father and to the Son. And so when it comes to thinking about the way the Holy Spirit ministers to us, the one thing we must not do is think of Him as in any way separate, at least, from Christ and the Father and how they minister to us. And when we consider the ministry of Christ and the ministry of the Spirit, thank goodness that we're not forced into a decision of either or. That we either get the ministry of Christ or we get the ministry of the Spirit. No, we get the both because they are one and the same. They are completely united They're completely harmonious with one another. New Testament spell this out in many different ways. Think back to the Great Commission, right? Maybe you've been at a missions conference and uh, the Great Commission was was, was taught and expounded on and and they hammered on the command to go and make disciples of all nations. And that's a very uh, invigorating thing to think about. but, But remember also the promise that Jesus makes. I will be with you always until the end of the age. And then he ascends to heaven and you're like, well, wait a minute. How can Christ be with us always if he's in heaven? I mean, how does that make sense? And look at the language in verse 10. It says that Christ is in us. And you hear that Christ is in you and say, that's great. But how? Colossians 3, 4 says that Christ is our life. And again, that's great. But how does that work? How can a man in another dimension in in heaven can't see him, we can't hear him, we can't touch him. How can he be our life? How can he be in us? And the answer, of course, is by the Spirit. Because the Spirit has been given to us and He indwells us, by the work of the Spirit, Christ gives us His life. Right? Every time we talk, every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, right? The Word says that every time we, we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are feasting on Christ Himself. And we ask, how does that work? Again, it works by the Spirit. Because the Spirit has been given to us to pass on Christ's strength and encouragement to us. That's how Christ is with us. I was explaining to a friend, or I was having lunch with a friend a, a few days ago. He was telling me about how for his father, for his father to be apart from his mother is a very difficult thing for him. And he was saying even if his mom is away for just a few days, it's a very grueling experience emotionally for his father. And I've met this man, my friend's dad, and he's not... The particularly sensitive type, but this illustrates uh, a real thing we all experience, which is just to have the presence of a close friend or a loved one or whomever is an encouraging thing. And by the ministry of the Spirit, we enjoy the presence of Christ Himself. Jesus is with us by His Spirit, no less than if He were sitting with us right now, even. As we think out the implications 
uh, for this reality of the Spirit's indwelling in us, it's easy to, to think individually, right? As if the Spirit is dwelling in me personally, and over there he's dwelling in Dave, and over there he's dwelling in Tyler, and there are all these little pockets of the Spirit's presence in this room. But that's not the emphasis that Paul um, is making. We don't, this doesn't come through in the English, but in the Greek, Paul is speaking in you plural, y'all. You all have the Spirit of God dwelling in you collectively together as a church. Think about how that influences how we might view the church and think about our own church in particular. When we think about who we identify with most closely and who we think will understand us and whom we can relate to, uh, it's easy to think in normal fault lines. As if the person that will get me the most will be the person who has my interests or my hobbies or has my background or is in my same stage in life. But if we have the spirit, that is the closest bond we can have, right? That's what brings us closest together the most. So that's the work of the spirit we see, the dwelling of the spirit to bring us life from Christ himself. Second, let's look at the leading of the spirit. Let's look at how the spirit leads us to put sin to death. Uh, Earlier I mentioned the fallacy of thinking that the Spirit's main job is to give us a certain experience. But I wonder if there's another mistake that we make in how we think about the Spirit that that, uh, hits closer to home. Most of my friends in college all went to the same PCA church together. I had one friend in particular, and uh, she loved the Lord and and loved the lost and loved the church. and, And she was sharing to me once a concern she had about the pastor's preaching. Basically, the pastor's preaching was a bit too old fashioned. Too in your face. See, maybe you talked about sin a little bit too much. And her concern was that maybe if she brought her non-Christian friends, they would find it a bit off-putting. And I remember her saying, you know, the preaching at this church is great if you're a strong Christian and you come and every week you want to be convicted. But if you're not a Christian, maybe you'll have trouble. And I think her concern was, was maybe a bit revealing, as if we assume, and I think a lot of Reformed Christians think this way, that kind of peak spirituality is walking around and feeling convicted all the time. Like that's what we're going for, to feel convicted all the time. But is that the emphasis that Paul is making here? I don't think so. In verse 12 he says, brothers, we are debtors. And what he's saying there is that we're servants by nature, that God has wired us to be servants, to yield our lives in service to uh, another person or another thing. G.K. Chesterton, an early 20th century writer, was quoted as saying that the first effect of not believing in God is that you believe in something else. Bob Dylan, if you prefer him, said you got to serve somebody. (laughs) And Paul is spelling out the consequences of who we serve in verse 13. Look at what he says. It's another warning. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Then he gives a promise right after it. If by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And I would argue that's one of the hardest truths in Scripture to believe, isn't it? That on the other end of what we call mortification, which is the practice of putting sin to death, that that very thing gives us life. C.S. Lewis drove home this point very powerfully in his book, The Great Divorce. In this world that Lewis creates, uh, there is no chasm between heaven and hell. So the saints in heaven are permitted entrance into hell where they can go and maybe speak to someone they knew there from life on earth and they will try to persuade this person to repent of their sins and and if the person repents, they will be permitted entrance into heaven. 
One man in particular has a lizard attached to his shoulder, and this lizard stands for like a, a besetting sin of some sort that, has a, that, that, that he both loves and hates. The, the lizard whispers these terrible things to him and makes the man miserable. But yet he doesn't want this lizard to be killed. And an angel comes to him and says, I can kill him if you want me to. And the man waffles and hems and haws and says, oh, that's so drastic. Can't there be another way? Maybe we can just solve this problem gradually. And the angel says, there is no other way. He must be killed. And the man finally agrees and the angel rips the lizard off. And the man, you know, shrieks in agony because he just had something ripped off his shoulder. But then something amazing happens. The lizard, after it's died, transforms into this horse, a a large, majestic horse. And the man leaps on the horse and rides away up a mountain into glory. Because he had died, he had put to death the deeds of his body. He then lived. And the thing is, putting sin to death feels like death, right? We've, we've experienced this. Maybe you're in an argument with someone and your blood is boiling and you've thought of a really great one-liner but you know you shouldn't say it and so you bite your tongue and it doesn't feel life-giving. It feels like you're depriving yourself. Maybe you come home from work and it's been a long day and you would love to just kind of have some time to yourself but someone in your family needs you and so you put away your self-centeredness and you tend to their needs. It might not feel life-giving, but it is. That's exactly what it is. Putting to death the deeds of the body doesn't feel life-giving, but if we do it in cooperation with the Spirit, it is life-giving. Verse 14 tells us why. When we do these things, when we walk the path of obedience, we are led by the Spirit of God. That should cast a different light And how we often think about what it means to be led by the Spirit. Many Christians think that to be led by the Spirit is to know exactly the right thing to do in life at each and every turn. And typically it involves maybe like a non-moral decision, like should I send my kid to South Carolina or Clemson? Or maybe that is a moral decision, but that's another story. (laughs) But how do I make that decision? Well, I have to see where the Spirit leads. And there is something to that. We should seek wisdom in all things. But the type of leading that Paul has in view is obedience to the commandments of God. That's what being led by the Spirit is. Being led in the path of obedience. Obedience to God's commands, which he gives us in his word. So we've seen the Spirit's works of indwelling, to give us life, of leading us to put sin to death. And third, let's look at the work of the Spirit in assuring us of adoption. Jerry Packer wrote a great book called Knowing God. It has a, a really fantastic chapter on adoption. It's one of the best chapters I've read in any, any book ever. And he says um, that if he had to summarize the New Testament in just a few words, he would say the New Testament amounts to adoption through propitiation. And propitiation simply means uh, the reality that God's wrath has been removed from us because it was placed on Jesus on the cross. That's propitiation. And that strikes me because I don't think that's how a lot of Christians would describe what the gospel is all about. They might say the gospel is just propitiation. That the best thing about the gospel is simply that I'm not guilty. Or simply that God is not mad at me. And those are amazing things. But is that, is that the core I mean, what if someone asked you about your marriage and you said, oh, it's great. I don't remember the last time my wife was mad at me. Like, let's set our sights higher. 
And propitiation is not the end game either. It happened for a higher purpose. Everything that Christ did for us on the cross, his suffering, his, his agony under the wrath of God was done so that you and I could be his children. Children of the Father. John 1 spells this out. For those who received Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Look at the benefits in verse 15. Intimacy. We have intimacy with God. Maybe you saw the word Abba and you thought, and you have Dancing Queen ringing in your head now, and if so, I'm sorry about that. Abba is an Aramaic term uh, of deep affection that a child has for his father. Maybe we could translate it as Daddy. And the point here is not that when we pray, we should address our God as Daddy because that wouldn't capture everything that God is to us. But the reason we don't address God in that way is not because we're not close enough to Him for that. It's not because God is too distant to be addressed in that way with such affection. Because God gave us the Spirit to assure us that we are as close to His heart as can be. That's what the Spirit does for us. There's much more we could say about this topic of our adoption as children in God, but I want to highlight one more thing in particular. Um, And that's the placement in Paul's thought of this idea of adoption. In these verses, Paul revives a contrast that he also made in chapter 4 of Galatians. We just read of it. And it's this contrast between uh, slavery and sonship, slavery and adoption. It's an important contrast because there's no third way to relate to God. If you do not know God as your father, and if he is not the one who loves you and who cares for you and forgives you, then all you are to him can be a slave. And if you do not know God as your father, your only option is to grind and grind and grind and try to be good and try to be good and hope that it is enough. That's what you're consigned to if God is not your father. So why bring this contrast into play in Romans 8? Why does does Paul bring in this theme of our status as sons and not slaves? Look at the end of verse 17. Part of discipleship, part of... Uh, this process in life that we find ourselves in of being prepared for glory, part of that process is that we must suffer. Suffering is not optional. Suffering is not stated as like a possibility, like you might suffer and hope you don't. No, we are heirs provided we suffer. Suffering is essential even. And we talked about that Sunday morning, right? Rome is coming. And in the same way, suffering is coming. If you're a Christian, suffering is not a maybe. Suffering is not something we can hide from and hope it will go away. And when you suffer, the way our hearts naturally respond is not to think that we are going through these things because God is our Father and He loves us. That's not natural. That's not a conclusion you come to through any sort of human logic. But you can know that by the Spirit. You can know that because you have the Spirit assuring your hearts that the things we go through are not for our judgment. They're for our growth. I have a friend recently who lost his father to a very long and painful bout with cancer. Um, This friend was telling me that in the last few weeks of his father's life, his father's pain was so severe uh, that that even increased dosages of morphine had no effect. There, There was no numbing agent that could be given to him. He was just going through unbelievable pain and agony, and yet... This friend told me that what his dad kept repeating is the Lord is so kind. The Lord is so kind. 
And you hear that and you think, well, maybe that's something only super Christians can really say, right? Only super Christians can have that kind of joy and faith in, in the midst of pain and agony, but I hope I can get by when I suffer. But no. The spirit who assures a dying man and fills him with hope and faith and confidence is the same spirit that we all have. If you have the spirit of God, you have all that you need. You have all that you need. You have, what have we seen? The presence of Christ. You have the strength to fight sin and you have assurance that God is your father and it does not get better than that. If the Spirit has given you all you need, then you can face all that the evil one can throw at you because our God is with us. And he's been given to us that we might have encouragement as we live this life. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for the Spirit. We give you thanks for the Spirit because he connects us to Jesus. The Lord Jesus, though you are in heaven, you are with us by your Spirit. The Lord, increase our confidence that you will be with us through all things, through trial, temptation, times when our life uh, appears to fall apart. Uh, let us be confident by your Spirit that you have never left us and you never will. May we walk by your Spirit. May we not resist his Proddings in our lives, but may we truly walk by him as he shows us Jesus and what our Lord would have us do and think and live in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.